You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the creative editor at Nori's Carbon Removal Marketplace. Rebecca Carlson, you are back. Nori's Agriculture Supply Lead. Thanks for co-hosting with me today. Oh, happy to be here as always. No, you're my resident farmer, agronomist person I tap on your shoulder when I need some backup here, which I definitely do today because we have the pleasure of having Dr. Michael Katutwa Johnson on the show. If you saw the film Inhabitants, which is a fantastic documentary, he's featured quite prominently within it. Uh, Dr. Johnson earned his doctorate in natural resources and conservation. He's a Hopi farmer in Northern Arizona, and boy, are those shots gorgeous. And uh, yeah, Inhabitants, if you haven't seen it, that's what we're talking about today. So thank you for being here, Michael. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure to have you here. Uh, I mean, you start out the film. So if you turn the film on and watch it, I think the first shot is this beautiful drone shot of what appears to be quite arid farmland, something that you might not expect. Well, it probably isn't even farmland. It probably just looks like desert to you, but you actually somehow have a farm out here. How is that even possible? Well, you know, we've been in this area for oh, well over 3,000 years. Uh, sometimes some people um, in my own place would say since time immemorial. And so we've learned to raise uh, crops in this very arid environment with only an annual precipitation of six to 10 inches. And so uh, we're able to raise things like corn, beans, melons, squash, uh, and even a form of cotton but that has its own scientific name, by the way. And so uh, and so we're very arid out here. And so but we're able to do that. And uh, that's just, you know, thousands of years of uh, what I call indigenous ingenuity. And just living with the environment, you know, a lot of a lot of, you know, indigenous populations throughout the United States are all place based. And so if you live in a certain place for a number of years, for ours is over 3000, we get to know the environment pretty well. And so we're able to manage, manage it in, in, in a good way. Okay, to jump into dryland farming. So my background is like the Great Plains, right, where dryland farming isn't the desert. And so watching the film, you talked about planting corn, like to two feet of like, how do you get it? And like, I mean, how do you even like tell people that that's an okay thing to like plant that far deep in such an arid environment? And like, how long does it take to emerge? It's so- Wait, For comparison, Rebecca, what what is in your oh, yeah. in your work? It's right. like an so, inch, right? Yeah, like Horn, a couple yeah. inches mm -hmm, at most. And okay. so like <laughs> translating what I envisualize <laughs> as yours is like, hello, different. <laughs> Well, you know, I was when I was at Cornell University, I had the same from undergrad, you know, in, in their crop because I majored in agriculture there. I had the agronomists ask me the same situation. You know, um, I don't you know, I don't know if the if the if the audience is very familiar with, you know, parts of parts of the corn as it comes up, you know, like the epicotyl, you know, with that the growing region of the corn from where the seed to, to where it emerges. Uh, ours can extend out to something like 33 centimeters. You know, it's been documented to do that. And so, you know, in, uh, and so a lot of our a lot of our varieties have adapted over, you know, thousands of years to come up from that, those type of depths. And so, you know, all the techniques that would, you know, allow that to do that are, are most of them derive around, you know, uh, making sure that we have enough soil moisture in the ground. And so soil moisture can be found sometimes in the dry year at those depths. And, you know, and we're able to determine that not necessarily with a, a, a temperature probe, you know, or, or a moisture probe, but we're able to look at the, the vegetation that exists on the ground. You know, we, we know our environment so well, we know what plants, you know, have shallow root systems. And if there's an abundance of those, we know that we don't have to plant that deep. You know, the, the two feet depth is an extreme depth, right? And so, you know, I think, you know, in conventional agriculture, we go one inch, 14 inch rows. 
and then we only go down and you know we only go down an inch and so we only plant one kernel per hole you know ours is opposite of that you know we plant you know 10 to 12 kernels per hole you know at, at certain depths our spacing between our rows is about six feet rows maybe six feet between each plant you know cluster of plants you know and then over time we thin those out over to leaf six or seven like in july we'll start to thin those out to keep that soil moisture constant and so it's, you know, it's all basic agronomic principles, but everything has to do with soil moisture, you know, and because I think we do plant them in clusters, they're able to help push through the surface. We have what they call sandy clay loam soils, which is perfect for soils, you know, I mean, perfect for corn, uh, pH levels around 7.3 to 8.3, <laughs> things like that. But, you know, it's just, to me, it's just the ingenuity of our people that have allowed it to come that because, you know, you have to have our own form of, of basically plant breeding, you know, some of the genetics behind that and so forth. And just you know, the whole, the whole gauntlet of things. And so um, I always tell the little kids when we come to visit me that you can be anything. You can be an hydrologist, you can be an agronomist, you can be a botanist, you can be an environmentalist, you know, uh, you can be anything. And so because we learn all those things basically at Hopi as little kids. How did you actually come to be a farmer? Because it seems like it wasn't a direct path for you. No, it wasn't. You know, my dad was in the military for the longest time. During the summertime, out of the three children that my parents had, I was the one who dropped off out here at the age of eight, you know, spend my summers out here and start to farm. And uh, I used to kind of hate that, you know, because, you know, I always thought that it was boring, you know, and I, and I told my grandfather one time that I was bored. And he's, that was the last time I said that, because the next time at 530 in the morning, I was up hoeing weeds again, fixing fences. And I never said that again. But, you know, I learned how to farm at a young age. And so I just it's a continuing process. I think, you know, it's I'll never be a perfect farmer, you know, like a lot of things in the world, but, you know, I'm, I'm getting pretty good at it. And so it's just it's just something that, you know, is ingrained in our value system at Air Hopi. You know, we're a faith based society. You know, everything we do is, is we're supposed to have faith behind. You know, and so that that includes that. In fact, when a kid is just only, you know, when he's first born, you know, there's a baby naming ceremony at Hopi. We will raise that child up to the sun early in the morning and we'll place a small little piece of sweet corn pudding in their mouth to to remind them where they're from, to ground them into our own our own ways and our own belief systems. And a lot of people don't have that. And so, you know, but that's who we are as a people. You know, we are like corn in a, in a lot of ways. That was that's one of our sayings that we are like corn. And, and indeed we are. And I really have come to believe that over the years. You speak about this in the film that you had some some trouble with alcohol and recovery. We had a former guest on Nephi Craig, who I believe he, he's Navajo and Apache, and he's a chef out on the uh, White Mountain, Mountain Apache land. And uh, he talked about connecting with people's food ways was a healing process and not coming back to the land. Since both of you had said similar things, I wonder how common an experience that is and if you could reflect on that. You know, for us out here, you know, it's because of some of the situations that we derive from, you know, uh, with, with lack of a lot of things that could help us succeed. You know, we tend to sometimes a lot of us tend to go into that dark hole. We forget a lot about our culture. You know, we forget a lot about the things that we're supposed to be doing. You know, and so for myself, and I know Nephi pretty well, you know, but for myself, you know, it was just kind of a, me always trying to fit in, you know, to a society that basically I knew little about, you know, but out here, you know, I got to grind myself in, into to what I do and what, what really meant something to me. And, and I worked my way out of that, you know, I worked my way out of that. And so uh, I was very fortunate to do that because a lot of my friends who I know, you know, they, they don't, they just don't do that. But to me, it was just getting more involved in my culture, getting more involved in 
farming that allowed me to overcome to overcome this. And I really appreciate that. You know, I think, you know, I, if I wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't have finished my PhD. You know, I'm, I'm in consideration to be offered another academic job. And so and I, none of this would have ever happened if I would have stopped. But, you know, by doing that, you know, and by, by working with what I do, you know, it allowed me to basically look at the successes that I've had instead of the failures that I've had. Right. And so, you know, once that happened, then I was on the right track again and I, and I continue to be on the right track. So thanks for asking about that. You know, I really appreciate that. And I follow up with that. So you said like you forgot about, you know, where you came from and those practices, but it's forgot or like told not to remember. It wasn't that I was told not to remember. It was just that I, I had forgotten, you know, I'd forgotten all of the young things that I was when I was taught when I was a young child, because there was so much out there in the world. You know, there was so much other things out there, so much type of a different culture, you know, but I was very fortunate to work my way out of that. So it wasn't that I, you know, I wasn't, <laughs> I just wasn't, you know, told not to, I was just, I just totally forgot, you know, and so, you know, farming brought me all back to that. I so often like regenerative farming is so much bigger than the land, right? I feel like whenever, when people go back to farming and working with the land as the land should work, it's so healing, personal, cultural, so many different ways. So can you talk a little bit about like why you decided, like how farming was like that hook to get you back in and how it's. You know, the whole, the whole regenerative, you know, uh, generations and things like that. That's it. It's just that, you know, when you're, when you're out there working with the soil, you're actually, you know, learning responsibility, you know, you're putting your effort in your, in your thought process into something other than yourself. You know, I think, I think that's so important that we, that we do that, you know, it gives you a chance to slow down and really think things through, you know, and you go away feeling tired, but not the kind of tired from, you know, reading magazines or doing too much homework, but, tired of just the for physical for physical things like that and so your whole body starts to adapt your whole body becomes like corn like it is you know you're you're kept in the underground for a, a period of weeks two weeks you know exactly and you're able to emerge from that and come up into this new world and you're able to nurture that you're able to nurture other things when I mean, your plants are out there they're like they're like we have this very intimate relationship that we have with our crops they're treated just like humans are. they're, they're talked to they're sung to you know, and it's, it's kind of just getting that out of yourself. And from that, you know, our, one of our most biggest tendencies is, is to practice the art of humility, you know, because if you really think about it, humility removes all the egotistical things that are about a person and everything that can, can cause them to go awry, you know, but just by, by being a humble person, you know. And so that's what I try to do today is I try to try to practice that. But a lot of that is done, you know. Just my experience is based upon my work in the cornfield and other, in other parts of my life that I've become aware of. If someone listening doesn't have an indigenous heritage that is so immediate, imagine any group of people, if you go back far enough, had a really strong connection to, to their native land or native area where they, they lived. Is there any way to recreate that now or to experience some of this rootedness that we've lost? That's always a good question. I've always have people, you know, nowadays, you know, there's a big movement on trying to, um, you know, tap into indigenous knowledge you know, to look at that through, through the help of, with the environment and look at some of what we practice, you know, look at some of our management techniques. But, you know, when I, when I have friends that ask me, like, how do you, how do you remain so grounded? How do you, how do you do this? You know, I always tell them, you know, why don't you take some time and go look at where you come from? Where did you originate from? Look at the cultures that, that were, that you were a part of, you know, rather than trying to adapt something from somebody else, why not look at yourself? Why not do a self-examination process of where you're from, where your ancestors are, you know, things like that, because I think, you know, a lot of people in America, they seem to have lost that identity. 
And uh, they just don't have that. And they're searching for something. They're really searching for something. I think most Americans are looking for a place to kind of fit in, a, a place of trying to bring some value back into their lives. You know, and so, but I always say, just look within. It's all there. I believe, you know, as human beings, we all have our answers, right? It's just, do, are we willing to take the time enough to investigate ourselves? You know, um, and that's and that's basically my advice on that one. I think it's solid advice, certainly. And beyond just personal advice, it seems like there's a lot to learn for policy implications too, especially because you had sent this to us, this memorandum uh, for the heads of departments and agencies about indigenous traditional ecological knowledge and federal decision-making. And it seems like some of these insights that we're talking about on a small scale level may ripple out to much greater ones. Is that, mm-hmm. is that what's happening? Yeah, I think it's happening uh, right now. I think the only, the only part that holds that back is just that a lot of the agencies don't have guidelines in place. That's always a problem when new policies come out. Once this information is starting to be captured and, and, and gathered, will there be a place to house some of this data? You know, a lot of this would go back to what they call intellectual property for just to some extent, you know, and so are they ready to house the data and are, and are the tribes, you know, willing to, to give this data freely? You know, that's that's the other thing, you know, where's is there going to be a build, more building of relationships? You know, is the consultation process going to be going to be fully enhanced? Is the consultation process going to be streamlined rather than just agency to agency? Because, you know, right now you have an Army Corps of Engineers has a different consultation policy with tribes than the Forestry Service does. And so, you know, people do different things, right? You know, I think when uh, people tend to forget that we are wards of the federal government, you know, and we do have a political relationship with the tribes. I mean, with the, with the federal government, unlike any other minority. And so, you know, those things need to be enhanced and, and you know, self-determination needs to be pushed forward. You know, that that memo that, you, that, I, that I sent you, I think was a beautiful way to start, you know, because for the longest time, my work is trying to show that, you know, our experiences and our replication through our practices anywhere from 2000 to 10,000 years old. And as a scientist, I know that replication is one of the key ingredients to make sure something is valid or not. You know, can you prove this experiment over and over again? And we've done that, right? And so I've been trying to create ways in, in, in one of the other papers trying to show that what we do has the same conservation outcomes as what, what the Natural Resource Conservation Service had. So why aren't we able to receive funding why? Because our practices aren't scientifically validated. And in my opinion, we should be accepted as the ones who are validating the sciences, not the sciences validating us, you know, because we have more experience. It makes sense, right? It makes sense, but a lot of people don't listen, you know, and uh, I think people get upset because, you you know, your name, your own thing and territories get territorial and, you know, and so there's no open mindedness when it comes to this type of stuff. But I think we're searching for something. Look at our environment. My God, man. Indigenous people sit on 80 percent of global biodiversity on 25 percent of land with only 5 percent of the population. Here in the United States, we only have we only we're only sit on 2.6 percent of the total land, but yet we are also locked into 5.4% of key biodiversity areas here in the United States. That's amazing, you know? And so, you know, that shows us that we're still managing our land the way it should be managed and that people can actually live there. You know, we're not like Leopold and Muir, you know, where, where land can only be pristine or, or, cons- or conserved. Conservation can only really take place if it's absence of humans. That is such a crazy thing to say. We've proven that we've done that and things like that. But yeah, and so... That's, that's kind of where I'm at on that. <laughs> so many of like, well, so Nori, like we're rewarding regenerative practices and like the modern sense of regenerative, right? Going back to no-till and 
like you were saying earlier, like you've been doing something that solo probes are just now capturing. When you're planting at depth, you're looking at the plants, not some fancy technology to measure the soil moisture, right? And so you, it's like having all this, these older practices, but they're not like backed by this fancy science yet that makes it seem like it's actually not working, right? So like in modern agriculture, like, oh, we've been doing corn on corn on corn for the past 30 years and this kind of pill it up in this system. If you look back to like 50 years, actually it worked pretty well. We just didn't have the fancy tools to capture it. And if you look back for millennia, like people have been stewarding the land very well in very traditional practices. And that's actually how we can get this kind of like full ecological benefits from the land. In this memo, we want to value the the practices of generations. However, a lot of people who are trying to get into it don't have the generations of knowledge, right? So what kind of ways can we translate what you're doing to people who are getting back into it or like apprehensive of breaking a system that's only 30 years old? I think the biggest picture, the biggest thing that I that I find the most troublesome is just the market, the market analysis that USDA done. You know, they're based upon efficiency and quantity. You know, you have to be efficient and you have to have a lot of quantity. And so when you do that, you wind up having to come up with an agency called the Natural Resource Conservation Service, which was basically designed in my mind to help fix the problem that that people were creating on all different levels. Right. And so we need to move away from that a little bit. You know, I think, you know, the small farm approach, the regenerative approach, I think is, is a good one. But, you know, we also have to figure out, OK, well, well, here it is. But, you know, how are we going to subsidize those farmers who are moving away from conventional to regen when there's about a three to five year window there where they won't be making any money? And, you know, as I know that the, the farming uh, budget has a very slim, very slim uh, margin in order to be to, to be profitable. But getting back to your basic question about, you know, how can we learn this thing? And I, and I, I don't have a real fine answer to that. I mean, it took us 3,000 years and still we're still adapting, you know, to get to that point, you know. And so I don't think you can rush nature, right? I, I don't think you can look at it like that. And I think, you know, trial and error is always, has always been part of everything, right? Observation, you know. And so I don't know if I really answered that question, but I think the movement's good. I just, I just think that we need to just kind of slow down a little bit and, and just kind of sift through everything and find out what our end goal wants to be. You know, do is our end goal, does our end goal want to be profitability? If it's like some cooperatives, I would know our form just to take care of the land, you know. Uh, but as long as we're going towards that efficiency quantity uh, part of, of agriculture, I don't think we'll ever get there, you know, because we're, we're too much invested in that. That's a big problem. I agree. So how, like, in the smallest of ways, right, there's so much indigenous knowledge that is more valuable than I think like efficiency, way more valuable. But how do you like share that knowledge in a way that honors its heritage? I mean, like I'm in conferences and people are like, and this is the father of regenerative agriculture. I'm like, regenerative agriculture didn't start in 1962. I think somebody else actually, you know, provided that knowledge. So how do we honor the heritage of the people who've been doing it for millennia and learn from it to actually adopt it? You know, I think you should, you should bring recognition to those, to those things. I think, you know, nowadays there's a land acknowledgement. Everybody seems to be doing land acknowledgement areas and things like that. I think, you know, that that's very important, but, you know, taking the next step would be, you know, inviting some of these practitioners into your, into your conferences, you know, like uh, over there at, um, the regenerative agricultural conference had in Albuquerque, and I was invited to come in there and talk about some of the practices and, 
and uh, and things like that. And, you know, and just do it that way. You know, I, I think just getting a voice at the table, the person doesn't have to have a PhD. You know, there's a there's a lot of nonprofits out there that work directly with with small farm, small indigenous farmers, such as the Native American Agricultural Fund, you know, the First Nations Development Institute. Indian Land Tenure Foundation. There's just a number of organizations that I'm sure would have contact information that you can send uh, and invite to your conference and, and, and send a little time aside, put them on a panel somewhere, you know, just as long as they, you know, have a voice. Because I think, as you know, our stories have st- are still having t- uh, trouble being told. You know, I mean, for example, just recently, the Labor Department of Labor just released uh, Indigenous in- employment, employment statistics, never been done by a federal agency, never been done. And so, you know, that's important because for the longest time, and it's, and it's still as it reads today, that we're just a forgotten society. You know, our, our pictures are plastered all over museums, you know, but they're not, they're not like they were in Inhabitants. Inhabitants was a great film only because it showed us in a contemporary setting in this century, not in 1800. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so that's what the beauty of the film there. It's just, you can see that we're still here and we're still doing what we're doing, but we still need to tell a lot of our stories. You know, and if the media would open up more, then we could do that. Like today's podcast, you know, that's, that's, those are things that I'm grateful for. One of the stories that comes through, and this is probably the dominant theme of inhabitants is just how managed, maybe you like that word, maybe you don't, but how much involvement, human activity and decision-making played in what uh, later Europeans viewed as wilderness that's just untouched. Is that part of the story that you think needs to be told? Oh, yeah, that's that's part of the story. It's just, you know, managing is living within what the environment gives you. You know, one of my favorite sayings is, you know, Hopi is a place where we fit the corn, where we raise the corn to fit the environment and don't manipulate the environment to fit the corn. You know, that really makes a lot of sense. Right. And so, you know, that that's kind of what we do out here. That's what kind of what most indigenous practice practices involve. They, they involve this intimate relationship with, with the environment, you know, from living there for a long time, the place based approach of doing things. What grows well in this thing? How can we help this? You know, it's not about a take, take, take relationship. It's a, it's a reciprocal relationship where you give something, you take something. I mean, for example, out here, even at Hopi, you know, when I was asked to go uh, gather some stuff for, for one of our Kiva ceremonies, you know, take some sand from an area and bring it back to the Kiva. You know, we left a, a small a pao, a pao, a prayer feather there, you know, as our way of giving back, you know. And so it's, it's that type of approach, right? It's, it's that type of looking at things, you know, and that's, and I think that's important. But I think the one of the main important, one of the most important things out of that film was just the, the concept of we're doing this for survival. We're not doing it for economics. We're doing it to survive and to, and to make sure we have another generation. You know, and so I think that was another key message I got from from that whole entire film. How much of agriculture is this? Uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man kind of inversion. where We're trying to <laughs> force crops that don't actually grow in a place. Uh, Rebecca, I'm sure you've seen some farms in your work. I'm sure you have too, Michael, of being like, nothing you're doing here matches the environment that you've set these plants within. Even just like corn. I'm thinking about corn and thinking about corn in an arid environment seems foreign to me but when you think long term like that's where it came from where i think of it planted shallow thousands of acres in the midwest and so it's what belongs where i guess you know i think you know everything everything to me is keyed upon moisture you know everything needs moisture germination needs moisture we need moisture you know our bodies are made up like 90 percent water (laughs) <laughs> and so, you know, when the absence of that, you know, we cease to exist, right? 
And so, um, but I think, you know, like I said, at the beginning of the kind of at the beginning of the podcast, it's our faith, you know, it's, it's who we are. It's, it's, it's part of who we are. And so, you know, there's a difference there. I mean, I mean, if, if you live with something for a long time and, you, and the environment does that, then, you know, we don't have like, for example, we don't have thousand acre fields out here. You know, we are one to one to five acres is probably the biggest that we have. And so that fits perfectly within our niche, you know, and so you can grow a tons amount of food. Pre-colonial contact, you should have seen out, you should have seen the production out here. You know, we have records of the Spaniards that when they came in here, they had, we had thousands and thousands of acres of, of different types of things, fruit trees, you know, fields all combined, you know, and uh, it was, it's just that type of approach, you know, and we weren't exhausting the environment, you know, we weren't, we weren't hurting the environment. We were able to feed ourselves. I mean, it wasn't until like, you know, in my mind, we got the introduction of cattle came to Hopi where we started kind of doing, going through privatization. And I don't, I'm, I'm not knocking privatization at all. But I'm just saying that it kind of breaks down the community, you know, as far as, you know, everybody getting together and having my version of a 14-year-old John Deere planters having 14 Hopis with John Deere hats <laughs> and their planting sticks going down the field, right? And so, you know, it's just that type of innovation. But I, I just, I, you know, it's just, to me, it's just all about play space and getting to know and, and, and then having a certain value system in place also that, that makes sure that things becomes truly sustainable. The mechanization of agriculture is just, it's, it's just hard. I mean, it's just, it's expensive, but it's just takes away the value of some things where I hope, you know, we still plan a lot of things by hand, but the labor's intense, right? The labor's intense, but look what comes out of that. There's the whole human well-being aspect of it. You're able to become physically strong, you know, you're eating the right things, you know, you're doing all these things that you're supposed to be doing. It's way off the charts when you when you when you want to do a whatever they call kosher analysis, whatever. It's just if they were to put human well-being into there, it would it would be fantastic. You know, the quality of food that's raised, my God. You know, there's 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 tons of stuff that's potentially could happen. It's just a matter of just harnessing it and moving it forward throughout the throughout the United States. You mentioned this at the beginning of the film that, and it sounds like maybe you want to recontextualize some of those comments because it said that privatization and the introduction of cattle was really the beginning of the end of this of this way of thinking. And that really was a, a huge problem. But I'd be curious to know how you think about private property rights on reservations, about how farmland should be treated, uh, how it's done now. I wonder if you have any policy thoughts on that. You know, well, private property rights on the reservations is a, a non-entity. I know we have a lot of lands. We have like six different types of land classifications on the reservation, which, which has a bunch of jurisdictional issues. A lot. You know, I, I think one of the main things that that hurts American Indians and their involvement is this is this thing called, you know, this case called Johnson versus McIntosh, which is basically the doctrine of discovery. You know, it basically gives us a right to occupancy, but not the right to title to our lands. And if you don't have the right to title to your own property, then what what can you do with it? You know, and so it's, it's one of those it's one of those barriers that kind of still stand in the way. And I don't know if we'll ever solve that problem. I have nothing, no, you know, no regrets or, or bad things to say about, you know, private property owners and things like that. But, but you know, it, it, to me, it's it, things are, are better um, managed when things are held in common, you know, uh, and it depends upon what you're doing, you know. But for us, you know, we still do a lot of things. We still make a lot of decisions out here on consensus. What kind of society is going to want to stand around, come back five or six times, still not reach a decision, but then finally get a decision that's consensus? Everybody leaves like they've accomplished something, right? And things are a lot more stronger that way and stuff like that. But yeah, so I don't I'll have a problem with private property, you know, and I don't know if I answered that question, you know, fully because we, we do have, and as far as farm is concerned, you know, I think if you're, if you're able to take care of that land, and I think private property does bring some sort of responsibility because that's yours, right? I mean, it's like, 
it's like me building my house. You know, I'm going to take care of that house because I built it. You know, it's like if you have a piece of farmland that you're profiting from or you're surviving from, you're going to take care of that. I mean, we've, we've done that for thousands of years. When, you know, we don't claim it. We don't claim it, though. You know, we just manage it because that's our part of our belief system tells us to do that. You know, uh, this whole stewardship concepts rather than ownership concept. And so, you know, there's a difference there. And so, you know, I, I find out that the, the stewardship things do work a little bit better, you know, because it allows me to get out of myself more than anything else and things like that. So. I can definitely see that. I think if you take the policy out of it and just talk about living well, I can certainly see the stewardship angle being very beneficial. It sounds incredibly difficult though, to not have title to something that you might occupy and in essence own. Like, How could you take a loan out? How could you prove that the stuff there is yours? It sounds like really hard to have economic development and growth. How, how would it even work or does it? It doesn't work. I mean, I'm, I mean, you're right. You know, for example, you know, every time we have a natural resource uh, like the coal extraction or, or something else, we have to have permission of the federal government to do that. They have to be the signee on the contract. You know, there's there's ways around that now that we're able to try to figure out. You know, there's different laws that are in place that would allow us to do that. But a lot of them are very technical in nature. A lot of them are very bureaucratic, heavy paperwork. You know, and unfortunately, a lot of us out here don't have those skills. Some of us, I mean, 60% of least a lot of people don't even have 60% of the population and most reservations don't even have internet access, you know, or, you know, or, or even water and then things like that. So how, how do we expect us to participate in these, in these programs when we don't even know how to get through the paperwork, you know, who are we going to turn to, you know, it's kind of a nightmare in a lot of ways, but there are ways, you know, we have this beautiful administration now or, or people up in Washington, DC trying to, to make things, you know, uh, Janie Hip, who's now the general counsel, and she used to be the CEO of the Native American Agricultural Fund. She's making a lot of headway. And Zach Ducheneau, who's also part of the Farm Service Agencies, who's the administrator there, chief uh, head administrator, who's always start, he's starting to work at some of the paperwork problems. And so we're making headway in it. We shouldn't have to have done that, but we are making headway in that. And that's a positive thing. That's always going to be a positive thing. But we need our own people learning to do that. You know, we need people with the backgrounds to do that. And so, but we're making headway, but it's, it's just a long process, man. <laughs> I had a professor once who's saying like a good community, a good sign of a healthy community is having like a community pool. And this was, I went to undergrad in California. Everybody had their own pool. Everybody like, this is my pool. It's only not owned by me, but actually a, a healthy community has a place where everybody's invested. Everybody can gather. And like, it actually shows community on all levels, interest, stewardship and everything. What's like the parallel of like agriculture community pool? Of like, how are we sharing like all this knowledge? Well, I think, I don't know if you've ever heard of co-op models, cooperative models. I think that's the way to go, honestly, because everybody's involved in the process. You know, here at Hopi, you know, we, everybody out here has, traditionally everybody has a role in the agricultural system from the gathering to the, to the seed selection, to everything. And so uh, it's just an amazing thing, you know, and, and let me give you a shout out on this one. You know, I mean, this is something that people don't know that much, but, you know, at Hopi, I'm a farmer. But I don't own my field. I don't own the, even own the harvest. I'm just out there maintaining it. You know, everything belongs to the women, the house. It's a matrilineal society. It's not so much that we define our gender roles, but it's just it's, it's we define them in such a way that it brings balance to our society. You know, and I think that's so important. And I think cooperatives can do that in a good way, too. It's that whole sharing concept. You know, what does our end goal want to be? You know, and, and, and things like that and move towards that. It could be economics. It could it could not be economics. It could be something like that. And so, you know, we just have to figure out uh, different ways to get there. But I really like the cooperative model that I've seen a play across in a lot of ways 
in, in, as far as moving down the road with agriculture or anything else. What's the consensus model look like? I'm sure you've been in some meetings where you're like, all right, come on, we're talking about the same thing. Or maybe maybe it's part of the fun and part of the togetherness of it is working through some of that. But surely sometimes it's frustrating and hard. This is yeah. obvious, right? This is a silly yeah, question. I mean, no, it's not a silly question. I mean, just people, people, all, you know, we're all individuals, right? You know, thank God we're not clones and have the same thought process, you know? And I mean, we're, we're able to do what we like to do. And to me, it's just really about, you know, for us, it's about reaching consensus at Hopi, you know, that's a very hard thing to do, but I think it's a very valuable thing to do because then everybody has a, has a place and what you want to get accomplished. And so, but yeah, I mean, you know, I just, I'm just really happy about cooperative models. You know, I think, you know, cause we've, we've had that out here, you know, indigenous people have been doing that for a long time. You know, everybody's, everybody's contributing. We all have a, a certain goal that we want to do, you know, and things like that. But I think that's the way to go in, in my opinion. How big are these groups of decision makers typically when they convene? What's an example perhaps of something that you've decided this way? Well, I hope people probably maybe 20 people or something like that in in one of these things, you know, there's, but I've been to conferences where there's just more, you know, there's all different types of co-ops out there, uh, food co-ops, you know, business co-ops, you know, I would like to have, I would actually like to start a tribal, tribal energy co-op here in Arizona at some point, uh, because we have so much, we have so much base um, and we sit up on a third of the land of Arizona as reservations. And so, you know, we could do something really impactful. And so uh, it's just a matter of organizing that, though, you know, having a, that'd be kind of something, huh? Tribal energy co-op. And then you could have the people decide who they want to buy their energy from. Given that our practices are so resilient, you know, I would, I would, I would choose myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet you would. You know, it's, uh, uh, it's it's things like that. And, you know, it's just, but it's just, you know, a lot of this stuff has to, you know, you have to work with the council. You have to make sure that their, that their wishes are respected first. I think that's what a lot of people forget. You know, you just don't come into a reservation, expect things to happen. You have to get to know the people trust has to be built up and, and so forth down the line and things like that. So yeah. I actually, I grew up in the Phoenix area. I okay. spent time at ASU and U of A and mm-hmm. I've been up to Canyon to Shea and Chinle. And if you were the head of a new energy co-op, is it solar? Is that what you're doing? Mm-hmm. Solar. Up there? Yeah. Think about solar. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, certainly you have the land for it. I mean, it's, it's a big land footprint. I, w- I wonder, would that actually be thought of, in an appreciative way by your countrymen and women or I think it, it, well, I think it would, you know, on a reservation you know, we have like, you know, there's a, there's a, there's, we have pretty good size land base. And uh, I think, you know, as long as you move things away from our villages, you know, uh, I think that's, you know, the centers of population, we just kind of put them out there. I think that, that, that could be very palatable things like that. Uh, but I just think the whole organizing the 23 tribes in Arizona to do something big like that, you know, I think would really, really bring the equity argument to the forefront and see how many obstacles we're going to have to go through when we start to do something like that. Because I think that's going to tell a lot, you know, about this whole equity argument that everybody seems to be talking about right now. But it'd be interesting to start something like that and, and, and see where it goes. You know, why not? You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, for the last since 1492, you know, we've had to deal with all these assimilation policies, you know, trying to trying to make us become more civilized, you know, but yet we, we're way civilized more than, than a lot of people out there, in my opinion, you know, we've, we've done a lot of great things, you know, I mean, Jiminy Crickets, when the, when the Aztec pyramids were being built down in, down in uh, South America, the Black Plague was going on in Europe, you know, and so, you know, these are some of the comparisons that I like to make, not to discredit or make fun of anybody, but just to show that we're still here, you know, we've, we've done a lot of positive things, it's just that we were viewed a little differently.
but we've made a lot of kind of great contributions, you know, to the United States and to other parts of the world. It's just that we continue to go unrecognized, and I'm here to bring that back. <laughs> exactly. Story on the table told appropriately. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yes, 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 yes. Michael, in the in the paper, is talking about the indigenous traditional and ecological knowledge in the memorandum. Do you think this will actually create change? Like, will this be accessible so any people can adopt these practices? I don't know how much, you know, adaption that people can do because, like I said, everything's place-based. And I couldn't expect people to raise a farm like we do out here on on Hopi in Iowa Mm -hmm. because it wouldn't be economically viable. But I think a lot of small farms, you know, can adapt different areas. And I would encourage, you know, people to find out if you notice that paper talked about, you know, three different tribes and three different regions. You know, and so there, if I would try to find out like what some of the tribes are doing, what they traditionally been doing, you know, unfortunately, a lot of them, you know, don't live in their original areas anymore because of forced relocation. But, you know, they still carry some of that knowledge with them. I think one of the main things that, that I'm trying to do is that we still carry a lot of our seeds with us. These seeds are just like us. They adapt. They have adapted, you know, and uh, things like that. And so, you know, I would encourage people to do that more than anything. But. You know, like I said, you know, people people just need to really focus in on and learning who they are. I always tell people to love yourself, you know, first, because if you don't, you know, you can you can cause all kinds of other problems. Right. And so, you know, I always tell people to do that. And, you know, and then that all comes with just time, you know. Right. Do you think, though, like so meeting people, meeting like government programs where they're at, like conservation stewardship program, the equip program mm-hmm. of like ways that they're trying to drive change. But in your paper, you talked about like, there's a lot of bureaucratic hurdles that these indigenous like people groups can't overcome to actually access those. And so what do you think is that, that bridge of the bureaucratic, but also the bureaucratic ways of accessing these government programs with the fact that those are actually rewarding farmers for doing these practices. Oh, you know what I'm what I'm thinking about, and I'm and I'm and I'm going to put a paper out on that pretty soon. It's, it's in the last part of his writing is looking at what I'd call the Indigenous Field Office Technical Guide, regionally based Indigenous Field Office Technical Guide. For those people who don't know what a field office technical guide is, you know the NRCS has a field office technical guide where all your standard practices are in there, all your conservation practices. They've all been validated. Now, let's just say that, for example, we have an indigenous indigenous field office technical guide, which has our practices in there, don't have to be validated, you know, gets rid of that whole scientific requirement, and yet we're able to still access those funds. You know, not only are we are we doing conservation practices, but we're also building up our human well-being at the same time by doing that. You know, we're able to use these conservation funds to actually employ people to do some of the labor-intensive stuff that we've been doing, right? And so it creates incentives for more of our people to go back there. And it's kind of like a, what I would call the renaissance of Indian culture. You know, I'd like to have something like that move forward. And, and so things can be done. It's just a matter of how far we can take it. And I'm not just talking, working with the federal government. I'm also talking about the various nonprofit entities out there, like the, like the Environmental Defense Fund and the Nature Conservancy or the Welton Family Foundation. I'm talking about involving more of those philanthropic organizations, because right now I think only 0.003% of their money goes to Indian Indian people or Indian organizations. And so we need to figure out, well, well here we are, you know, we need help too, you know, and, uh, and we're not asking for like, you know, another form of welfare, but just, you know, some support to, to move a lot of these initiatives forward. Just like equal opportunity that oh, yeah. every other one has, it's not more or less, it's just like Again, bring you to the table at the same level. Exactly. Good stuff, though, Michael. I'm really enjoying this conversation. Same. Thanks. You know, I mean, this is this is like 
and you guys are pretty laid back, you know, as far as I'm concerned. And it's just a good, to, good thing for everybody to hear, you know, even the part where I'm talking about, you know, my drinking, I think that's important too, that people hear that too, because I can be a hope, I can be a mentor. And I think, you know, as long as I'm able to instill some of that in people, then I'm, then I'm good. You know, I'm happy. It's really not about myself. It's about everything else, you know? And so, but you know, you guys taking your time You're talking to two of the agronomists, you know, uh, that's a good thing. If you were a soil scientist, I'll throw a dirt comment in there, but you know. Well, you know, I've got a little bit. <laughs> don't say dirt. Okay. I know, that's what I <laughs> it's soil. I know, that's what I'm saying. It's so um, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, that personal stuff's really, really important. I think people want to connect with someone as a person more than as a scientist or as an intellectual. I think knowing that that's been a big part of how you even came to be is a great part of why people listen to shows like this. Yeah. You know, and, and I kind of want to pitch a, a thing out there for like, you know, the university of Arizona has just recently establishing this indigenous resiliency center, which is going to touch a lot in agricultural food systems and, you know, data sovereignty is going to encompass a lot of things. A lot of policy is going to be generated from there. Uh, a lot of pilot projects are going to be coming from there. And it's a good thing because I think, you know, um, uh, these land grant institutions, you know, a lot of them, there's one in every state, but a lot of them were enacted under the Morrill Act, you know, and a lot of them are still profiting from the land that was ceded to them way back in 1862. And so wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have these land grant institutions kind of take a little bit of responsibility and, and, and have and offer Native youth free education, a tuition waiver to attend these grant universities, rather than trying to come up with something that would supplement or give money to the tribe or give it to the, give it to the Native youth so they can go and get a free education. Why not? Because, you know, we, we have a political relationship with the United States government. No other minority has that, but we have a political relationship with the United States based upon treaties and everything else that we've done over time. So that's something that I really would push for uh, once this thing starts moving down the road a little bit. But yeah. You feel like your work has a fair amount of support from like the Bureau of Indian Affairs and oh, you know, yeah. other groups? Yeah. It does. You know, it's it's just good. You know, I think one of the best things I did for myself uh, besides stop drinking, that was the number one thing, of course, but it was just, you know, continuing on and getting my Ph.D. You know, there's very few of us out there. And I think, you know, we need to put, you know, more of us into these not only institutions, but across the board, like I mentioned, uh, so they can have a voice. You know, it's hard to forget me. I know you guys won't forget me anytime soon. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. especially my laugh that kind of gets everybody too right <laughs> so you know that's that, that's you know that's just part of me but uh, i'm always willing to share you know and it's always always welcome these type of opportunities to talk about everything you know because I'm, I'm pretty well versed on a lot of different topics and uh, i just happen to be a practitioner right i've happened to be you know going into academia but i'm also practicing what i'm talking about mm-hmm. you know and that's hard to find that it's really rare. is it's very rare and so when I talk, you know, like people to like the, the, the grains and stuff like that, they kind of look at me like, oh, what's he talking about? But, you know, I have a little different respect because I am a farmer like they are. I just don't do the things like they do. But, you know, they could understand, you know, I can understand what it feels like when we lose a crop, you know, or, or things like that, or how hard it is to actually raise a crop, you know, and things like that. So we, we know how there's this commonality, you know, all farmers to me, we all have this, this very uh, way, different way of looking at things. You know, we're all trying to support our families and, and do what we can, you know, and uh, and so it kind of it's a common thing, you know, but but I, I could I could only say that I'm a 250th, gen, 250th generation farmer. They can only go back about 10. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. And so, you know, you don't got nothing on me. So let's talk nope, about something bit. like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's so. But anyways, so, uh, it's been fun talking to you guys. So.
been great for us too. Well, we can, we can wrap it up there. Surely there's more to say, but we can, we can put a nice pin in it for now. Michael, Dr. Michael Kotutwa Johnson. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate that. And you guys just have a wonderful day. Thank you as well, Michael. It's been a pleasure learning from you. Thank you. If you like the timbre of this conversation, you should absolutely go watch the film Inhabitants. It covers a lot of similar themes and in greater depth than what we've done and also in different ways from what we've talked about here. And if you like the show, please give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you so much for listening. Tell a friend and have a lovely day. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.